morning church. We are going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. And so if you have a Bible and you want to go to Acts chapter 2, Acts is in the New Testament, second half of the Bible. It's right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have Acts. So if you want to go there, you can. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And if you're watching online, thanks for being here with us. The words will be on the screen at the bottom. Uh, Every day when I was driving to school growing up, my dad would listen to Paul Harvey. Do you remember Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey had this news radio broadcast, and the story would, the, the broadcast would start with him telling a portion of a story. And then he would stop, he would do some news, and then at the very end of the broadcast, he'd finish the story with some important detail, and then he'd say, and now you know the rest of the story, right? And I would always get mad if Dad dropped me off before the rest of the story, you know? <laughs> what was it now? Okay. Come with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before we look at Acts chapter 2. So, Jesus promises that the, you will receive power. This is chapter 1, verse 8 of Acts. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so we talked about a few weeks ago that the whole of the gospel life, like I said a moment ago as well, is when people repent, they deny themselves, and they believe in Christ Jesus, or they enthrone God. So deny myself as king, believe that God is king. That's the whole of the gospel life. And that, I believe, produces a better world, the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so what Jesus does to produce that better world is to send out you and me in the power of the Holy Spirit, believing that if we share his story, people will repent and believe and the world will be changed for his glory. Okay. But we got to tell the whole story. And as I think about the whole story, as I study the scriptures, I'm convinced that there are two realities or two dimensions of God's character that lead people to make that decision, to repent and believe, and then to do it again and again every day. I think one is God's kindness, and I think two is God's righteousness judgment. Let's talk about God's kindness. Paul says in Romans 2, he says, when you look down on somebody, so when you're unkind to somebody and you look down on someone in judgment specifically, he says that when you do that, you show contempt for the riches of his, God's kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to what? Repentance. You see it there? That's the whole of gospel life. So this is what God is after. And what Paul says there is remarkable. He says the kindness of God causes people to repent and believe. There's a couple examples. I mean, a lot of examples that I could give in the way that we see this lived out in Jesus and what Jesus says and does. Let me give you two. Remember, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. You got two boys. One of those boys wants his daddy's inheritance before he is due that inheritance, before his daddy passes away. And so his dad gives him his money, and he goes off and he squanders that money in a wild land and wild living. And then he has this moment when he hits rock bottom, when he's got nothing left and he's eating pig slop. He has this moment. Look at this. Luke 15, 17. When he came to his senses, I love that line. When he realizes something, a light bulb goes off. This is what he realizes. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? What's he realizing? 
My dad takes care of everybody that's his. Gives them more than they need. He's realizing the kindness of the Father. And look what, he's, look what happens when he realizes that. <clears throat> I will set out, I'll go back to my Father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. What's that? Repentance and belief. You see it? So he realizes the Father is kind, and he wants to go to him. Look at that. Well, let me tell you another, another story. This one's a Jesus story. You find this in John chapter 8. Jesus is minding his own business, and a bunch of guys drag this woman out in front of Jesus, and they tell Jesus that she's been caught in the act of adultery. She's doing what she shouldn't be doing. And they expect Jesus to join them, to pick up a stone and to throw these stones at her. And instead, Jesus writes in the sand... We're always wondering, what was he writing in the sand? We don't know. But he looks down in the sand, and he begins to write. And he tells those guys, okay, this sounds great, guys. If any of you are without sin, go ahead and throw stones at her. So none of them can, can throw a stone at her. They've all got sin in their lives. And so one by one, the stones fall. And Jesus finally looks up from the sand, and he sees just the woman standing there. He says, do they not condemn you? And she says, no one does, sir. And he says this, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What's that? Repentance. Turn away, deny yourself, and live for me now. What's motivating her? The kindness of God in Jesus Christ. You see it? Received, embraced. That's what motivates her to change. This guy loves me so much he would intervene for me. It's the kindness of God. Uh, we had a new family come to our church recently. They came for a special event that we were doing. And uh, I had a long conversation with the dad while he was here. And uh, we shook hands and parted ways. And um, I didn't see him for a couple weeks. I didn't think anything about that. It was just a special event. And then he showed up at church about mm, two months ago, two, three months ago. And then they've been coming every Sunday since then. And I got an email from him. And the subject line was this, funny how God works. And he described that at that event that we were at where we shook hands and parted ways. He said this, When you shook my hand before I left and you said, Come back and visit with us, I thought to myself, He sure is a nice guy. Too bad I won't be seeing him much in the future. <laughs> but then he said the Spirit was working on his heart, on the heart of his wife. And he said his wife, and this is a quote, She knew we needed a place where we could be accepted and welcomed as a family, all of us. And it took me a while to see that she was right. And so here we are. And he goes on to say, I just wanted to share what God was doing in our lives through the church body at Highland. I love that. I love that. Okay, what's he experiencing there? The kindness of God and the people of God. And that's life-changing. Makes him realize he belong, belongs here. He wants to live for the Lord here in our midst because he's experiencing the kindness of God through us. Okay, that is such an important part of the gospel story, and we have got to tell that, the loving kindness of our God. Okay. That leads people to repent and believe gospel life, but it's not the only thing that leads people to repent and believe. And the other dimension of God's identity that leads people to give their hearts to him, to sacrifice themselves daily and give their lives to him is the righteous judgment of God. 
So come with me to Acts chapter 2 now. This is the first Christian sermon. I've said that a couple times. Acts chapter 2 starts with God pouring out the Holy Spirit on us. The people of God begin to speak in tongues and do other miraculous things. The people watching this are trying to make sense of it. And so Peter addresses what they're wondering. And he starts his sermon by quoting from Joel. And this is what he says. Joel is an Old Testament book, an Old Testament prophet. He says, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. So this is what you're seeing happening, everybody. I'll pour out my spirit on all people. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you and I hear that and we're like, yeah, the day of the Lord. The Jews who heard that heard, oh no, the day of the Lord. Because what the day of the Lord means is the long-awaited day when God is going to come and judge everybody. That's what the day of the Lord means. And so what Peter is saying here is God has poured out his spirit, and that's a sign to us that the clock started. As soon as the Holy Spirit was poured out on us, the clock, God's eternal timer started. And we don't know how long that clock is going to run, but when that clock stops, God's day is here. And when God's day arrives, he is going to judge everybody. So you want to be on the right side of God because that day is coming. All right, and then he goes on to say this to those he's preaching to. He sets the stage. You want to be on the right side of God and you need to be saved. Make that clear. He says that as well. The name of the Lord, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he says. So God's making a way for you to be saved from his day. But then he goes on to say this to them. This man, Jesus, Acts chapter 2, verse 23 This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you. Now pay attention. He's going to put God on one side and you on the other side. Watch. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You see that? You know that song, Greatest Commands? God is love. God is such a Church of Christ song. You know, four-part harmony is awesome. Okay, we're going to sing it next week, I think. Um, let, let me just point out, though, the first Christian sermon ever preached is not a big a Greatest Commands sing-along. He is not leading with the love of God. He is leading with the judgment of God. What he's saying is God was doing something in the world through his son, Jesus Christ, and you got on the wrong side of God, and on the wrong side of God is not a place you want to be. You need to be saved. The first Christian sermon is not you need to be loved. The first Christian sermon is, you need desperately to be saved. And he has made a way for you in Jesus. You need to choose him. And fast. That's the first Christian sermon. Um, Do you all remember the 1986 movie, The Fly? Uh, It's this horror movie with Jeff Goldblum, the guy from um, uh, Jurassic Park. He's a scientist and he's turning into a fly. You remember this? Uh, TNT used to play this on reruns all the time, so maybe you watched this growing up. Okay, 
he's turning into a fly and there's this scene and when this, this woman sees him and she's seeing this transformation take place in him and he says, oh, don't be afraid. And she says, no, be afraid, be very afraid. That's where that line comes from. You remember that? That's kind of the tone of this sermon. Uh, and a part of us hears that, that that was the first Christian sermon, be afraid, be very afraid. And we're like, oh, Peter's a little tone deaf. Surely Peter's getting Jesus wrong. In fact, you know, it's, it's a pretty common narrative, even among Christians, that where guys like Peter and Paul talk about people and choices that they're making in their lives as wrong and not honoring God, that that kind of, that kind of uncomfortable, confrontational, convicting style doesn't represent the heart of Jesus. Jesus would never tell somebody that they were wrong. He would never judge someone. But let me just point out to you what Jesus says about himself. If we want to talk about what Jesus would say and do, let me make really clear what Jesus says about himself. This is Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus talking about himself, and all angels come with him. He will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will do what? Separate the people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. What's he saying? I'm going to judge the whole world. Jesus is. I'm going to judge everybody. And I'm going to separate them. And the ones who don't land on the right side of that separation, he says that they'll go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Okay, do you see now that in Jesus, we have these two dimensions of God's identity in one person. God's absolute love and kindness. And God's righteous judgment of the whole world. And that to tell one of those is to tell half the story. And we want to tell the whole story, right? So I think the question you got to ask, because you're going to go out from here and you're going to engage a world that's hurting, that's confused. And the question you're asking, and you should be asking is, which version do I tell? What does this person need to hear? about God. And I think that depending on where that person is, you can choose the wrong one to lead with. I think that's possible. I, I know, we know in the history of the church that there's been decades and generations, maybe millennia, where the church led with judgment and a, a lot of people just needed some love to change their lives. We know about this. We're nodding our heads, right? And it's also possible that we lead with absolute love and we never lead somebody to conviction. And because they're not short on love in their life, their life doesn't change. They never feel the need to repent and believe. So which one does the person you love need to hear? I think it's like parenting. You ever heard the, the word teachable moments? You've heard this. Uh, maybe your kid gets burned or maybe they didn't study for a test. They touch the stovetop and they get burned or Maybe they didn't study for a test, they get a bad grade, or maybe they're leaning back at the dinner table in their chair and they fall over. What I've, what I've learned about teachable moments is that they are rarely teachable in the moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, when they're crying and screaming, they don't need to hear, I told you so, although that's what you want to say more than anything in the world. 
Okay, what, they need, what do they need to hear? Hey, I love you, buddy. I'm on your side. Let me kiss that. But I think about the other scenario of parenting. Like when I'm maybe cooking at the stovetop, I don't do much of our cooking, but when I do, the boys like to get up there beside me and help out. And they stand on chairs and I've got this hot stovetop and they're reaching all over the place. You know what I'm talking about with your kids? Okay, so what loving parent doesn't say to that kid who hasn't yet experienced what it's like to be burned? Hey, watch it. You know, pull back. You don't want to do that because if you do that, this is going to be the consequence, right? So you, you, you see it kind of depends on where the person you love is on which message you lead with. Or let me give you this example of our youth group. We got the best youth ministers in the world. A couple weeks ago in the same week, I saw our youth ministers ministering to one child who's lonely, struggles with depression, is isolated, crying in the conversation. What does that child need to hear? Hey, God loves you. God's on your side. We love you. We're on your side. In the same week, another set of parents sent their child to meet with our youth ministers because their child keeps making one boneheaded decision after another and hasn't experienced the consequence of those decisions. It can't understand why. Those would be bad decisions to make. And what those parents want that child to hear from their youth ministers is, hey, bonehead, stop it. We don't approve of, of what you're doing. You're on the wrong side of us. You're on the wrong side of God. And you need to rein that in. So just think about it. When you parents send your kids to the youth group every Sunday morning, you're wanting your kids to hear totally different messages depending on where your kid's coming from that week. Think about that. Isn't that fascinating? Right? Man, that's a tall order for our youth group. I'm glad I'm not them. Oh, man, that'd be hard. You hear that? When we gather together, we come with different needs. And what we need to hear is based on where we're at. And that's true of the people that you love. What do they need to hear? They need to hear about God's loving kindness? Or do they need to hear about God's judgment? And that it's wrong to be on the wrong side of God. Get right. Repent and believe. What you can see there is that a ministry where only one of those was preached, where we only witnessed to one of those dimensions of God's identity, would be incomplete and I think ineffective. It really takes telling the whole story. And so I, I, I'd ask that you pray for me as I do that week in and week out. That your prayer would be that Eric would tell the whole story. Because there's somebody whose heart's not where your heart is that Sunday, and they need to hear something else. I, I'd ask that you pray for our Sunday school teachers, for our shepherds. As they teach the Word of God, they need to hear different things in those classes based on where they're at about who God is. But here's my thing. I'm praying for you because what Peter says, what Jesus says to us, is that you're all his witnesses. This promise is for you and for all who are far off. All of you are responsible for telling the story of Jesus to the world. Which part of the story are you going to lead with? You need to tell it all. Which part do you start with? Think about that. I'll, I'll end with a um, C.S. Lewis story. In World War II, uh, Europe was hurting, obviously. And C.S. Lewis was asked to do these series of radio broadcasts. Those broadcasts are now a book. That book is called Mere Christianity. Ever heard of that book before? It was, a, it was radio broadcasts during World War II before it was a book. And so Lewis is dealing with a city, a world, really, a country that is hurting and broken. 
And we might think that what he would lead with would be God's loving compassion for them. That's not actually where he starts. Where Lewis starts is with the conversation he, conversation he hears among school children, among people discussing the war, among people discussing things in their own lives, the conversation he hears again and again, that's not right, he hears somebody say. That's just wrong. They shouldn't do that. That's unfair. This isn't right. This is wrong. And maybe some of you are feeling that about the events in our city this week. This is wrong. And Lewis says, where does that feeling that something's right and wrong, where does that come from? I mean, why do all humans just have this innate sense of when a wrong has been done to them? He says, if there's a moral imperative on all people like that, it must come from somewhere, he says. He says, I think it probably comes from a God who cares a lot about right and wrong, apparently. He says, if there's a God who cares a lot about right and wrong, and he really, truly cares about right, he must not like the wrong in me, or else he would not be a good God. And if the God who cares a lot about right and wrong doesn't like the wrong in me, then that may mean I am not on his side. And the title of that broadcast was, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. Feel, somebody feeling uneasy, somebody who's far from the Lord, feeling uneasy about that is okay. That's different than condemning them, right? That's different than belittling them or making them feel like nothing. Someone feeling uneasy may be the very thing they need to feel to repent and give their life to Christ Jesus. Some people aren't short on love. They're not lacking love. What they need to feel is a little bit of unease. Let me show you how the sermon ends. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. You know, that word actually means um, a horse's hooves trampling the ground. What it means is like when, when Peter preached this sermon, their hearts were ripped out, thrown on the ground, and horses trampled on them. He wasn't mean, though. Look at that in the sermon. He's not mean. He's just told them the truth about God. And they're convicted by this, cut to the heart. And he said to Peter and the other apostles, the people, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many words he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day we are going to be a place of God's love and embrace. Let me commit that to you. But, but notice, if we're a place that lacks any conviction, if we're a place that never tells somebody you have cause to be uneasy, some people will never turn to him. And our desire is that they will. That you will. Every day. That you would repent and believe.
you have not done that, I would love for you to do that today. When you take that step of repentance, denying yourself and enthroning Christ Jesus as king, you're baptized. You can do that in the water behind me. If you haven't done that, I would love to join you in that today. And you can do that after, come down here after I pray and we're dismissed and we'll, we'll do that together. Let me pray over you. God, I'm thankful for your people here. And I pray that in this body, we would tell the whole story. And that we would be a place of deep comfort in Christ Jesus. And deep conviction in Christ Jesus. Make us both to your glory, God, and for our good. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.